This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. My guest today is my dear friend, Mark Owen. And you'll find that this is less of an interview and more of a conversation between two good buddies just catching up. It is part four of a special four-part series titled The Head of the Snake, Killing Osama Bin Laden. Now, without further ado, part four of my conversation with Mark Owen. So moving into this next chapter of life, like you, you had this chapter in Alaska that was incredible. Uh, a little time in college to transition from Alaska to the rest of the world, uh, figure out how to, how to enlist and go through that process. Then you had this time in the military that, I mean, you couldn't have done more. Uh, and now it's time to turn the page. And it's January of, of 2012. So in December, when you tell your leadership that you're getting out and moving on, what was your plan? Like, what was your... You did, have to have did, a plan for did you, <laughs> did you have a plan for what you're going to do next or for something you wanted to explore? Or were you Not just really, knew that one chapter I, was done? I, I still have a hard time thinking of another job that is like being a SEAL, mm-hmm. right? I, and I, I, I loved it. It was everything I dreamt about. That's what I lived. So when I stepped away from that, do you think of finding a better dream? I don't know. I, I didn't have any other dreams of doing anything as cool. I didn't know what else was out there. So that was kind of like, okay, that that side of me may be done a little bit to some degree. And maybe it's find something, you know, a little more sustainable rather than, I don't know. Didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I was big into the gear. I know I had a lot of relationships and had, had designed gear and, and was very into that. Um, and I thought, okay, I could, I could add value there maybe gear consulting for companies, doing something along those lines um, when I first got out. So, you, but you didn't, uh, you weren't like, I'm so passionate about this next thing. That's what I'm going to go into. Or um, like, how much thought did you put into it? I mean, you put a lot, thought, a lot of thought into getting out and you're like, this yep. time and I'm moving on. But how much uh, time did you think it, about the next chapter at that point? Very little, because uh, most of my thought was, okay, I knew where I was coming from and I knew how that would kind of play out and continue. Mm. I didn't know what getting out and where that, that's the big gray area. There's the unknown over here. I know if I stayed in what that trajectory would look like, mm. I, I could weigh all those pros and cons. Um, but no, I'll be honest, I've been out what, over 10 years now and or going on 10-ish, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'd say in the last two years, I've really started falling into what's, what I'm passionate about. Mm-hmm. And I've really found something that, that gets me as excited as, as, you know, being a SEAL was. So, um, so no, I did not have a plan or, or an idea of where I was going to go. I, I knew what I knew and that was it. And I'd been very institutionalized and surrounded by a whole bunch of very trustworthy, close-knit group of guys that if they said they were going to meet me here at a time, they would meet me there at a time. They would, you know, help me in any way they could, right? Put the needs of your teammates above yourself. And that's the organization I grew up in. And leaving that, uh-huh. I think the biggest eye-opener in the civilian world was not everybody's like that in the civilian world. And I, and I entered that space 
assuming such. Oh, wow. And that was probably the best, biggest, quickest eye-opener was, no, nobody else in the civilian world gives a shit about you. Interesting. And I, I think that experience of leaving that, like that is not atypical. Um, and by that, I mean so many of our friends have done something similar in that they have turned the page uh, and moved on and expected or wanted to find something that was similar to the SEAL teams. And, you know, I got to see that when I got back from Iraq during those, when I made that decision to get out, and then I'm going into uh, be the operations officer at BUDS, which is not the toughest job on the planet. Uh, I mean, you have such great instructors and, uh, and phase O's and master chiefs, like, you know, they've got, they, they've got it. So point being, I had a time to take a breath and look around, but as the opso, you get so many calls asking, hey, can you give so-and-so a tour? Hey, can I bring somebody from this and such by this company buying give them a tour? And of course I'm like, yes, you know, of course, always. Um, and, uh, but you got to see like, okay, why, why is this person calling and giving this person a tour and what are they doing now? So I got to see it through that other lens just because I was aware that they were coming and who they were bringing. And, you know, if it was like somebody that I knew the senior level leadership <laughs> might not approve of, I just, you know, just like, hey, here's a good time. <laughs> here's a good time to come. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we'll walk you around or so-and-so will we'll take you around and take you to the obstacle course and, right. and you know, that sort of thing. Because, of course, you want to hook up your, your buddies, especially good guys that are out there that are, you know, struggling to find their way. You know, you're always going to lend them a helping hand and, and all that stuff regardless of what senior level leadership might say but uh but i got to see that like, i was aware of ah uh, this person just got out this person's been out for 10 years and they're you know still going to this event here or there they're still at uh the bars in coronado um and uh they're still calling for tours why is that are they so for me it was like i saw so many people that had a hard time letting it go even if they'd quote unquote moved on. Yeah. So I was able to identify that. So I think it was very valuable for me to be in that position just to identify that and be like, okay. Huge, huge perspective gain on that. Mm -hmm. Cause until you see it, you never experience it. I never thought twice about being a civilian. All I ever wanted to do was be the best seal I could be. And then to the point where I was like, okay, I'm ready to get out. But you don't think through what you're gonna do next. And I think what I've seen on average is I, I call it an enlistment, right? So about four to five years, most guys get out, mm. takes them four to five years. Unfortunately, I wish it was six months, right? Mm -hmm. But it, four to five years to kind of find their way and really hopefully nail something and yeah. start start being as effective in the civilian world as they were in the teams. Yeah. But it's, it takes a little bit to figure out the new game. What's, what's the new uh, operating environment you're working yeah, on? Yeah, but what drives me crazy is that we know, we know this. Our senior level leaders know this. And, you know, what have they done? Almost zero. Um, and, you know... Part of that is we're focused on the mission. Not right. everyone, but you know those good, those hard chargers are focused on the mission, and right. you know been there. Some other guys who maybe are not. But if you're looking at transition and you're seeing the people getting out having issues, and you're seeing uh, ambient and sleep deprivation, and being on the vampire hours overseas, and you're seeing marital problems, and you're adding a little alcohol to that, plus not knowing what your passion is and your mission is going forward, and you're leaving a uh, an elite group behind that you're never going to be able to replicate in the private sector, like. That's obvious to anybody. You don't need any military background to right. be able to figure that out in sort of in these transitions. Yet we don't really haven't done much when what we could do is, uh, okay, hey, check this box for your one year transition. And instead of waiting in line for dental to make your appointment to then circle back around and then go to dental to then get seen, to then be told to wait in line again to come back for your 
tooth pulled so they can check a box off that say you're allowed to leave. Well, you know what? Yeah, you have a whole year and here's this program where you're gonna intern at five or six different places that uh, align with your interests and you'll be able to very quickly find out that if you were super excited about going to law school, let's say, well, you went and checked that out and, or checked out what happens after you graduate law school and you're sure. like, wow, this is not like uh, what I saw on TV. This is totally not me. I'm so glad I didn't waste three years in law school and then get into a firm and then be stuck and have bought a house and gotten married and have four kids. Like, you know what, we could figure that out in a month by doing an internship right. there. Um, so I, you could take a year, a year to do like all that. the leadership, right? The leadership in the community is, is to successfully accomplish missions. Yeah. And those missions are accomplished by active duty guys, mm -hmm. not guys who are leaving service. Mm -hmm. So as guys are leaving, yeah, they, they may have been part of your toolkit, but that tool's not usable anymore. He's leaving. Mm -hmm. I don't need to use it. I don't even think about it. I can't use it. Yeah. So they throw it away and they don't even think twice about where that tool goes or ends up because that officer is not getting promoted and anything about how his people transition out. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, he's focused on successfully completing the mission. So, and that should be the priority yeah. to some degree. Oh, totally. Yeah, you need a different, yeah, you need a different like command structure. Like, okay, you're getting out. Now you're going over here right. and these guys are going to help you figure out this next step because we have these connections with these different companies or you know whatever else it is and you're right. going to get to test the waters for a few days, a week, a month, whatever it is rather than having an expectation and trying to get to this thing that you've built up based off information that maybe you read in a magazine article or saw in a movie or whatever else and before you get too deep into it. Yeah. So you can kind of narrow down those choices sure. over this year-long period. And I think I it's think. more than helping people find a career when they get out because I... I think a lot of people exit the, the military in general, let alone the teams, with a lot of different issues. Very, mm -hmm. very diverse, long list of issues. And it's not necessarily they can't find a job and find the next step. It's, it's, a, it's a mental issue, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think NSW did a really shitty job my entire career worrying about the mental health of their operators, right? That as I got out, that's when they really slowly started about 2012, 13, 14, 15, it started ramping up of, of what type of, of care and, and the yeah. training they were giving guys on the, the mental health yeah. side. Um, so I think as guys transition out, they need counseling on mental health stuff just to get them re-in line with civilian uh, life. And then clearly the a career path transition. Yeah, and uh, help, civility help identifying that next mission and that next passion uh, in life and aligning those those two things to give you purpose you, going forward. You live with all this passion and purpose yeah, as a team, and then exactly. you get out and you don't have that passion and purpose, we're all mm -hmm. lost because we don't feel that. We have to feel it. And if we don't feel it, yep. you're lost. Yeah, and then we got to look back. Also, like, it's, uh, it, like, things have evolved. Like, guys getting back from Vietnam, obviously zero. You know, now we have so many more resources. It's so much better for people that are transitioning or that are coming back or that are dealing with the physical and emotional trauma of the battlefield. I mean, night and day from guys in World War II, Korea, Vietnam. Um, but uh, there's also been a lot of evolution uh, across industry that would allow us to, with minimal effort, especially when you look at what we just left behind in Afghanistan, um, could, uh, could help people make that transition a little more effectively, a little more efficiently. Uh, yeah. And yeah, and it wouldn't take much. I got out in 2012, in 2016, right? I got hit up by a, a, a former army ranger that used to work at my command. 
and, and he was in charge of helping guys out process, you know, your VA disability stuff, traumatic brain injury. It just helped you mm. put all that stuff together. And he contacts me. He says, hey, we found this new technology. It's called MERT, magnetic e-resonance. And he tells us about this new technology. They're sending guys from the command through. And uh, it sounded like crazy witchcraft to me, but it was helping guys uh, with, with their mental health issues, mm. right? Um, I wound pretty tight while I was in, uh, got out, right? Had, uh, you know, when I wrote the book, had all the government stuff come after me. I was, to say I was in a dark period of time for a while would be an understatement. And it was, it was tough. I mean, I was in a very, very, very dark spot where I think a lot of veterans find themselves. And, um, and this guy, Brandon reached out and said, Hey, there's this new technology. Uh, we can get you connected. Are, are you interested in trying it? And I think it, it was 2017, end of 2016, um, beginning in 2017. I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll try this. I'm, I'm out of options. I don't know what else to do. Uh, I'm, I'm not in a healthy spot, uh, both physically, just from injuries sustained through my career, or, or even mentally at this point. Um, so yeah, I went to this this place called the Brain Treatment Center in uh, in I went to one in L.A. There's one in, they're kind of popping up all over now, but they give you an EEG. They read your brain waves, and and for the first time since getting out of the military, right? I saw a neurologist. He'd given me my EEG. He could literally, from looking at my brain data from the EEG, he listed all all the side effects I was experiencing, right? Without talking to me prior. Prior to, he was able to read my data and he dealt with enough other veterans. He knew exactly what he was looking at. He's like, yep, this is lack of sleep, anxiety, depression. And he listed them all. And so for the first time, it was hugely uh, eye-opening for me because uh, I always, right, we all think it's in our head. It's suck it up. It's all we've been taught to do right. our whole career. Suck it up, suck it up, suck it up. And, uh, and for once, somebody was like, hey, no. There's, there's real stuff going on. Your brain waves are all out of whack. Your alpha that should be here, your theta that should be here is over here. It, it's all not working. I'm like, okay, great. You're telling me I'm, I'm messed up here. I get it. But can you do anything about it? And that's when they're like, yeah, we use this, this Merck technology, some high-speed magnets, and, and it basically taps the brain waves kind of back into normal parameters. And so I did that in 2017. And uh, you have to go every day for I mean, six to eight weeks. Yeah. I did it for over a month and, uh, and saw immediate positive results for me personally. Anxiety levels came down, depression went away, sleep got better. Um, life-changing for me, yeah. absolutely life-changing. And so since then, right, that was 2017. Now I'm, I'm very involved in, in this technology. Um, we're involved in putting it into different clinics, uh, teaming up with addiction centers, teaming up with veterans facilities to, to take this technology and long, long yeah. answer to just how you transition out and find your next purpose. Th that's been the one thing yeah. that's been, uh, it's been really cool for me, right? Cause I had purpose in the teams. I was helping people, um, surrounded by like-minded individuals. Right now, we're helping like-minded people yeah. who are equally as as uh, screwy a little yeah. bit, if that's what you want to call it. Um, so yeah, that's been that's been our our new passion, 
and uh, and we're bringing in other veterans are getting involved in it, and it's and it's really cool building a new community and. So, yeah. nice. I've heard from so many people that that has changed their lives um, and in a significant and positive way. We need so to get rid people. of the stigmatism, right? Had you asked me 15 years ago when I was in, if, right, if I meditate or would do any of this <laughs> brain treatment stuff, I would have laughed at you, right? And mm -hmm. like, fuck no. Yeah. Um, but I think we've got to get rid of the stigmatism, right? And I, I think if guys like us can sit here and talk about it, that, hey, mental health is a big issue and it's a real thing and it can happen to, to team guys who've done crazy stuff. doesn't matter. Yeah. Nobody's immune to it. And, uh, and a lot of work also with, uh, like, professional athletes that have had uh, brain injuries, football oh, yeah. players, hockey players, yep. that sort of a thing. There's a lot of similarities. Yeah, it works on, works on a ton of cross-section, right? When I was going through, there's a ton of veterans. They had some uh, former NFL players there, yeah. and they had a whole bunch of autistic children. Yeah. So I could be treat, get treated in a, in a room right next to you know, a 12-year-old getting treated for autism uh, yeah. with a similar type technology. Yeah, no, it's, in, it's incredible. And uh, yeah, so many positive benefits. And also for those guys that are coming from professional sports or from Olympic athletes, whatever it might be, there's, there's a lot of similarities between operating at a, at a high level, part of an elite team, and then all of a sudden, hey, they're, they're not on a professional sports team anymore. Or they're not on the Olympic team anymore. Now they're making this transition yep. uh, to the, the quote unquote private sector. And they need to figure out that next mission, that next passion in life too, because a lot of them have been just solely devoted to their team or their sport for so so long right. um, so a lot of similarities there as well but um, going back to transition and you get out it's January 20 uh, or 2011 or 2012 and when do you decide when do you start thinking about writing the book when do you start thinking about hey I should put everything that's happened over the last uh, X number of years down on paper I should capture that right. um, where did that come from? It had been, was it something that you had thought about because of the books you read growing up? Or did someone say, hey, you should write this stuff down. That's a pretty cool story. Like, where did that start? I don't think anybody ever came to me and said it. It was just something that I think, I think the catalyst, which, which started it all, I'd gotten out and I got a call from an author by the name of Mark Bowden. Mm -hmm. He wrote Black Hawk Down. Mm -hmm. He wrote a book called The Finish. Yeah. Right? It's about the raid. Um, I'm now out. I think I'm on terminal leave, maybe. He contacts me through a friend of a friend that knows him. And uh, he says, hey, I've already interviewed the president of the United States about the bin Laden mission, and I got the White House perspective. I've also already interviewed Admiral McRaven, head seal in charge of the raid from He gave me his perspective of the raid. Hey, we'd really, really like a, a ground truth perspective. So we got the White House and ground truth for this, for this book. Wow. Mr. Bowden, you already interviewed the president? Yep, yep, okay. You already interviewed Admiral McRaven, too? Yep, okay. So you've interviewed this leadership about the raid, and it's going in your book. Yep, yep, just need to talk to you as well. Okay, all right. When I remember back, about two weeks after the mission, right, those of us who were on the raid went up to Langley uh, and went to Leon Panetta's retirement ceremony from Langley, right? He was moving from Langley over to be SecDef. He had a little retirement party, gave a great speech, right? This is on the grounds at Langley. Mm -hmm. We're in our uniforms, name tags, everything. He gives his great speech, gets off the stage. He's like, guys, I want to introduce you to a couple people. Oh, who do you want to introduce us to? He brings over Catherine Bigelow and Mark Bull, Hollywood producer and screenwriter for Zero Dark Thirty. So 
We have Leon Panetta, director of the CIA, had authorized a movie. The movie makers are at Langley, Virginia, less than a month of the mission, within, within a month. Wow. The reason the movie follows the female agency is because they authorized people to be involved in that. Wow. Okay, so I knew the agency in Panetta was authorizing their stuff for a movie. I knew President had given interviews for his version of what he had done. I knew Admiral McRaven, and I didn't know a single person who'd actually put their life on the line who was sharing any story. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's when it got me thinking. That's when it, it uh, I was the guy who, I was the, the punk kid in a village in Alaska who read a book about the SEALs in Vietnam who, um, who was inspired by that book to raise my hand, volunteer, and serve my country. I was like, okay, I've grown up reading books. I don't think SEALs books, I don't think that's a bad thing, right? People have different opinions on it. Um, and I think those opinions have been formed over years of, of uh, right? When we were serving, there were people who'd served very little amount of time, maybe never even fired their gun in combat, uh, got out and wrote six books about all their you know, combat heroics. And I think that's that's what's set a bad precedence, right? Of of team guys writing books because team guys who've not done anything that then run around and beat their chests and talk about all the stuff they've done uh, that pisses the rest of us off who've done it. So I think that's the that's the rub on hey guys writing books. So I knew that was out there. It was what it was. But I was also a guy who everybody I served with either read a book or watched a movie to learn about the community to then join it, right? If it's also hush-hush and top secret, you never read about it, who's gonna join? So that's when I said, okay, start thinking. I'm like, wait a second. Every single senior leader in our government who was involved in this mission is either doing a movie or a book for their own reasons, and I'm guessing it has to do with political reasons because all their stuff is lined up to be released before the presidential election. Hmm. And that pissed me off again. Mm. because I'd seen all these leaders take credit for, right? Whether it was the Captain Phillips rescue or the Bin Laden, all this stuff, right? They're going to take credit for it, and that's fine. I don't want any credit. That's why it is what it is. Um, so I sat down, talked with a handful of guys that were on the mission. Said, hey, the guys that I trusted. Didn't speak to everybody on the mission, but talked to guys that I knew and trusted and knew me. I said, look, here's what I want to do. I want, I want to tell the story from our perspective. Um, I want to do it as apolitical as I can. I don't want it to be turned into some political fodder. Um, so he said, okay, yeah, do it. I said, look, from the, from the get-go, my intent is this, right? I have no intent of putting my name on it, and I'm not putting my face all over this, right? I'm not going to be the guy who's done nothing, writes six books, and talks about all the heroics. Um, I don't think I'm that cool. You've known me since I was 22 years old. I'm not. Um, debatable. debatable. <laughs> totally debatable, but... I, I've done nothing more than anybody else has done. I don't think I'm any cooler. I wanted to tell the story and I wanted to tell it the right way, the best way I could. And so that's why I set out to, to write the book. That's why I never put my real name on it, right? I, what's the upside? I, I don't want any credit for this. I didn't do it alone. We did it as a big team. So if I put my real name on it, I, there's, no, there's no reason to even have my real name on it, right? There's no reason to to uh, put my face out there and be like, hey, this is me, I'm that guy. That's yeah. why I've done the disguise on 60 Minutes and you know, I, don't, I don't do the face thing. Yeah. Um, I, uh, so as soon as I got kind of the, the green light from the, the, my trusted teammates that were 
they were cool with it. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I hired an attorney. I, I knew I had to hire an attorney to do this. There's a lot of documents that we'd signed, um, and I wanted to make sure I did it right. So I hired a former SOCOM JAG, a former judge advocate that worked in SOCOM, former Army guy. Um, he had represented a former uh, Army uh, Special Mission Unit officer who became an author and wrote a book called Killing Bin Laden, although they didn't kill him. And uh, he subsequently did a 60 Minutes interview. Mm -hmm. This former Army JAG had represented him and guided him through that entire process. He never had any legal issues. I assumed that I had the right guy on my team to help guide me through that process. Didn't think twice. Mm -hmm. He was advising me the whole time. He could review it like he had done for all these other books. Check. We write the book. He reviews it. I'm very diligent to make sure there's nothing classified in it. Um, the book comes out, and the government goes high and right. Well, I remember. Uh, yeah, crazy. Um, and at this, at, at this point, it's an interesting time because uh, for those of us who have been in, we remember the SOCOM video game. And we remember guys essentially getting orders. I think they, I think I was at team two and they, uh, group two is in charge of all the East Coast SEAL teams, uh, reached out and they needed guys to go down. I think it was to Florida, but it's been a long time, but they needed to someplace to go put on, you know, hold M4s and put on their uniform and get things videoed. However, they were doing it back in 2003, 2004 timeframe right. um, for these video games. And uh, they're like, well, your assistant ops, like a brand new officer at team two, uh, the, the opso was like, yeah, you need to go down there with these guys. And I'm like, no. <laughs> I remember just saying no, and he's like, okay. Uh, so they voluntold a couple other guys sure. to, uh, to go down there, and they went down there and did it. So we have, I think there's two or three SOCOM. I wasn't a video, never been a video game person, but I think there's a few iterations of this video yeah. game. So we have that, and of course we have uh, Active Valor, where once again, we have active duty SEALs getting orders Fallen to go cold. be in a movie to where we're moving carrier battle groups around, showing SDVs, moving submarines around to support uh, a film for recruiting purposes. Okay, uh, and I remember when you when you asked me about this, you it was like let's say spring of 2012, and I wish I'd given it more thought, and because I thought I did at the time, and but my thought was based off that video game, that Active Valor movie, and about on these other books out there at the time, of which there were many, but the two ones that had probably been uh, gotten the most attention were Lone Survivor and uh, American Sniper. Sure. And when you told and me you were thinking about this- all about those. Yeah, I, I believe so. And both had movies made out of them. But I remember when you, when you brought this up to me and you said you were thinking about it and you asked me what I thought, my mind immediately went to, oh, it'll be like, you know, in that group of those three, there were a bunch of other ones, you know, there's like a whole base of, movie, of books, not just by SEALs, but by tons of people sure. in the military. Um, and I was just like, oh, this will be at the top with Lone Survivor, American Sniper, and then, you know, whatever this one is. And that, that's what I thought. That's what I, that's where I was like, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> couldn't be the furthest. I that's, mean, yeah, it was a little, bit, yeah, a little bit of a miscalculation on, on my part. But that's what I thought, and I didn't, not for a second, did I even think that it would be. Talk to Latrell. NSW Naval Special Warfare asked Latrell to do the book and the movie. Yeah, they pressured him into it. He's publicly said that multiple times. So, 
you know, NSW also authorized Act of Valor, as you said. Um, I hired the right lawyer. Everything I had been told leading up to this and seeing, I was like, okay, hey, it is what it is. I, I don't think this is going to be a, a mass explosion, but I also didn't think we were doing anything yeah. wrong or outside the, the proper protocols. Because some people looked at those books and those movies and you know, rolled their eyes or said, you know, there was, little, there was that stuff going on, but sure. it was like, you're focused on the mission. And that was just something that, you know, yeah. it was just whatever. The, the, the SEAL books that came out that, that made, that would piss people off were the ones where they were written by the people who hadn't done much, right? I, I felt like, right, Lone Survivor, it is what it is. American Sniper is what it is. Um, there was you know, another author out there that, that writes a lot more and has done a lot less, and I think that set this bad precedent. I don't, I don't know where it came from. I, I just know, I, I think it was, had to do with they hadn't read my book ahead of time. Mm -hmm. They didn't know it was coming. Mm -hmm. The leadership in, in our, from the White House on down had all given their own versions for their own, right, whether it was the movies or books or whatever. And, and all their versions were slotted to benefit them to come out before the election. And here I had this book that they'd never read and who knows what they thought, if I was gonna throw stones or affect their version or whatever it was. And, and so, man, I absolutely got crushed. Uh, I remember as soon as it all started coming out and I realized there was an issue, mm -hmm. I remember reaching out to my former squadron commander who was then the squadron, or the, the, the unit commander at my former command, that I'd known for years. Like, hey, sir, you know, what's going on? Let's talk. He literally replied, delete me. Mm -hmm. So that was, that's literally, in the last 10 years, the only comms I've had from NSW, for official comms in any capacity was delete me. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember you were in San Diego when it was supposed to come out on September 11th. Uh, you're in San Diego jumping yep. for one of the foundations, charity a charity event. Yeah. And you're there and you jump and you land, I think. And then you get the word like, hey, this thing, news broke early. My like name two was weeks out, early, something it's like out, that. everything's out. Like two weeks early, a week early, something, something along those lines. Um, how, did it, how did it leak early? Fox News leaked my name. First one's to leak my name. Mm. My real name. Yeah. So it leaked there. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and let's talk about the name real quick. This is the issue I have, right? From the beginning, I never made this book about me. I put a fake name on it, right? Use Mark Owen. Everybody to this day, in the press or otherwise, Mark Owen, but real name is this, right? They go out of their way to use my real name. And all I've ever done is given them a pseudonym and asked for them to use that. All people do is, is use that. No, and it was right off the bat. And yeah. No, it was you're immediate. In, you're in San Diego, and I remember, like, right away, there's reporters at your house. And it was like, oh, geez, okay. And it was like, I think you, so I think... It took a few days, but we finally, like, you came to our house and stayed with us. And of course, you're at our house, your family's at our house. And of course, I'm going into work. And I'm here, I'm in these, you know, and being at a training command, they have some time on their hands, right? Because um, the, the guys are going through the phases, have it down, they've got it figured out, they're putting, they're making the guys do push-ups and sit-ups and runs and no courses and swims. Right. Um, so you've got the, the head shed over there who has some, some time to, to pontificate. And uh, so I'm in there hearing you know, what, their, what their thoughts are on it. And uh, in my head, I'm like, oh man, 
he's at my house right, <laughs> right now. And then we got a really cool person in San Diego to, uh, 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 to get you set up in their house, different address, all that sort of thing for security reasons. Cause like, we didn't know like, like who's, you know, all of a sudden is, is some, somebody who's radicalized well, crazy, online going to come after you and your family. And yeah, there's the, the radical aspect of how I've now been exposed and was just trying to be smart to protect myself and my family. But but no, the, right, the media wants to expose all that. And then you've got the media, literally, they're, they're worse than anybody else, right? They're showing up at my neighbor's house in Virginia Beach asking personal questions about my family that has nothing to do with the book or my name. They're just, they're just trying to be yeah. the press. I mean, it was a big, big story. And then it releases and it knocks, I think, Fifty Shades of Grey from its, you know, three-year run at the top of the New York Times bestseller or whatever, whatever it was. It had a significant amount of time up there. I think that was it. It was either that or like Twilight or something. But I think it was Fifty Shades. And uh, boom, like, like you're you're up there, um, and uh, like it was a big deal. It was a big deal. When do you start to feel the legal pressure? Immediately, right? Immediately. My lawyer said, the original lawyer I'd had, he's like, well, don't listen to these guys. They have, they have no right to say any of this. I'm like, well, they're sounding pretty serious, and this is the government, and, you know, hey, I want to be on the right side of this. Why are you saying this, and they're saying this? Mm. Um, and he just kept repeating himself, uh, no, you're good, you're good. I've repped other people. This is just repeated that. And, and so I went and found another attorney, get a second opinion. Second opinion was, hey, uh, no, there's there's something going on here that this original attorney's he's off, and and he's not giving you good advice. So, um, new attorney, and then just started the the fun uh, dealing with our our lovely United States government uh, for now going on eight years, ten years. What is yeah, yeah long time, oh, man. And it's been a rough it's been a rough road. Um, at what point did you did you stop and were you like? question, hey, should I, have, should I have done this thing? Or, oh man, I wish I'd never done this. Or... I think immediately it was like, okay, wait, whoa, what did I do here? Yeah. I set out with the right intentions, right? You, and right, you can always strive with the best intentions, but things yeah. can always go sideways. Um, I look back and think, man, um, had the right intentions, hired an attorney that I thought had all the right bona fides, Right? No, nobody's ever cared that I hired the attorney with the right bona fides. It was just I didn't follow the rules, so it must be my fault. Um, yeah. Because I remember when you asked me that about what I thought about your writing, I remember you told me two things when you, when you said that. And you said you're going to give every, every bit of it away. And you told me that you had an attorney who represented Dalton Fury for Kill Bin Laden. Who, no. And I was like, oh, he's going, you know. Okay. You know, I, didn't, I didn't even... Good like attorney. That, that just, I'm not out for me. Like, none of this is about me trying to be some sort of hero. Yeah. I don't use my face, no, I remember my you name. Said, yeah, you told me that. going to go to charity. No. All of that. Yeah, you told me that well before any of this stuff, you know, uh, spun the way, the way it did. Had you thought about it up to that point, the possibility of not turning into what it did, but um, was, it a sh was it a shock to you, the amount of negativity from our senior level leader from the community? In general, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I was absolutely shocked by that because I I knew they had authorized all this other stuff. I knew they had just done acts of valor, like what they were doing, and then what they were saying to me was so at odds, right? Yeah. Admiral McRaven and the president are giving interviews for a book. Panetta's authorizing a movie. Like all the leadership is authorizing their version. 
but now I'm getting I'm getting beat up on and and I get it. I get that the book wasn't reviewed, but I also know why it wasn't reviewed, and that's very clear to 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 see, right? It wasn't reviewed because of the advice from my counsel. It wasn't me trying to avoid anything. It wasn't me saying, hey, let's go around to this. Yeah. My, it was hiring an attorney, following his advice. Yeah. So I at least assumed they would look at the reasoning to how I made this decision and got here, yeah. right? And then as soon as it was a negative thing, I said, okay, I'll stop, original attorney, move to the side, new attorney, and let's engage with the government and figure yeah. this out. Like, uh, I just did a whole bunch of stuff for you risking my life, government. I'm not trying to screw you over here on this book. There's nothing classified in it. And, and ultimately, right, as much as they wanted to say all this stuff was classified in the end, right, my agreement and my apology letter I wrote to the government, there isn't anything classified in the book. I just failed to follow my pre-publication review. And mm -hmm. as somebody who's been through that review process, you know what a joke that is mm -hmm. and how convoluted and politically charged it can be. Because if you're a, a general or a admiral, you don't have to go through the same review process we do. Um, if you're, I know, I know sitting congressmen, former SEALs that have written books and not gotten them reviewed and now they're sitting congressmen. Uh, and nobody cares that their book didn't get reviewed. So th there isn't a standard. Yeah. It's very much a, a targeted, and that's that's what I chalk it up as, is yeah. wrong place, wrong time, and I became their number one target. Yeah, the, the timing, do you think the timing had something to do with it being- 100%. A, a year after, that's sort of still fairly fresh, and then also riding this wave of a time when people were starting to talk in the community about, particularly after Active Valor came out, like, wait, what are we doing? When did we approve this? Who, who approved this along the way? Because as we know, people are in these billets. These officers are there for two years at a time and then they move on. And right. then, so if you're in a position, uh, a senior level position, well, that movie was greenlit how many years back? And who did that? And what was the original intent of right. it? And now it's coming out on your watch and you have to deal and, and, and there's discussions about it. Uh, so there were already discussions that were gaining steam uh, around the time that the book dropped. Right. So, uh, and then they, and it's, when you have an active valor thing come out, it's not like that's a single data point, but there are all these other data points that uh, the books we talked about about earlier, uh, different Navy SEAL movies, uh, like all these things uh, have come out to up to this point, and now your book hits. Yeah, like right yep. at like right as that wave is about to crash. I'd also say right. We just had the Bin Laden deal, huge Navy SEAL stuff, right? Uh, everybody wanted to know what Navy SEALs looked like, and it was very high profile. Then you had uh, Extortion 17, right? So Vin, very high profile. So again, SEAL was all over the press, and that wasn't anything to do with a boatload of SEALs getting out talking about things. It was, we'd been successful in high profile operations. Yeah. That's it. And if you look Captain at the leaks, the leaks coming out of those high profile operations, they all came from the top. Mm -hmm. Right, it was, the leaks of all these operations wasn't coming from the enlisted side. Right, right. What was it? The uh, the article was the first article wrote about the Bin Laden raid. After oh my gosh. The mission. Which was very soon out. I was in Iraq when that came out, and it was spot on. Oh my And gosh. it was leaked from a Command O Six SEAL. Everybody knows who it came from. They don't care. I write a book. I seek legal advice. Lawyer screws me over. I get bent over. And it's been a long time since I've read that article because I remember being in my little hooch in Iraq when that article came Spot out on. and read it because I didn't know anything about the you know the raid. Yep. You know, I, I 
you know, it happened. I deployed. Boom. So all I know was coming from, you know, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, yeah. whatever. Um, and then that one hit. And I was like, this is really, whoa, was this person on? Very accurate. Was this person on the mission? He was you know? one of the planners of the mission. And there's a lot of detail in there. I mean, yeah. I think, I mean, like I said, it's been a long time since I've read that, uh, you know, 10 years. But um, I, I believe it's a little more detailed than, than this. In, a, a lot of it lot is, of to some degree. Yeah. Right? Like. But that was amazing to read that. And then it, because I thought if anything was going to cause some sort of a, a furor, like that would be it because there was a lot of detail. I can, I can remember, right? That article has a ton of detail. Yeah. Now, fast forward a few years later, I'm now getting in trouble from the government for writing No Easy Day. And I'm sitting down with them to go through anything they have questions about. And I got this guy who's just grilling me, being the, the typical asshole. And uh, he's like, you know, you have American blood on your hands. Really? How, how's that? He's like, well, you know, you wrote this book. You talked about Jalalabad, and and there was a mortar attack in Jalalabad that that killed a soldier last week. I'm like, okay, so you're telling me that the Taliban translated my book into Pashto within a week of it coming out and decided to mortar Jalalabad because they learned through my book that the U.S. military is operating out of Jalalabad. I'm like, sir, how many times have you been to Jabad? He's like, well, never. I'm like, okay, I've been there at least twelve times. How many times I've been mortared in Jabad? Every single time I go there. Do you know who our cooks are at the chow hall in Jabad? Russian contractors. Do you know who pumps our shit? Really? Yes. We had Russian contractors cooking our food. Oh, that makes sense. And we had we had Afghan guys pumping the shitters that were reporting everything back to the Taliban. Yeah. That was the type of stupidity that they were trying to come after me with. You've got American blood on your hands for writing that book. Yeah. So you're sitting down. With these, how, how, at, at what point do they, do they contact you after this thing comes out? Was it right away? How do they do it? Is it through? Through my attorneys and it's back and forth and it just drags on. Like how did they find out who your attorneys were? Is that through the publisher or like, how do they even start? I think my attorney reached out to, once I hired my new attorney, not, not the original one that was giving me the bad advice. I got the new one and was like, Hey, new guy, engage with them. Cause they seem to be pissed at me for something and yeah. I need help negotiating that out. Okay. Gosh. Uh, and so this starts a chain of events that uh, is still not fully resolved, but it's more resolved than it was, let's say, five years ago, four years ago, or along those lines. Um, but It was a straight-up strong-arm tactic. We're going to pressure you. We're going to run you dry of funds. We're going to out-lawyer you. We're the government. We have unlimited lawyers. You have to pay for attorneys, so we'll just slow roll you and run the legal bills up. And, and so five years into that is when I was like, oh, and, and th these were the government trying to get me on a felony or a misdemeanor for writing the book, right? For leaking classified information. These were the threats that I was constantly getting. Mm -hmm. And I just kept fighting it saying, prove it, prove it. Show me something that's classified. Show me something that, that I did wrong besides not getting it through the publication review process. And that was me following my lawyer's advice. Prove it. Five years of those battles later, they finally said, okay, We'll leave you alone. Just pay us all the money back. Yeah. So I said, okay, I'll write you an apology. I just wanted the bleeding to stop. It had been five straight years. You know, talk about my mental health being in a dark spot. Yeah. Leave the military, no pension, no retirement. Try and reinvent yourself and then have your own government just try and stomp you yeah. for the next five. So that was, um, yeah, that was a tough period of time for sure. What did you think when uh, when former friends started stopped 
taking calls or texts or that sort of a thing? I would, I would get calls, texts from random numbers and it was guys' wives or they'd get a burner phone and be like, yo, dude, hey, man, uh, the command's saying if we make any comms with you, they'll kick us out. So, hey, bro, we love you. We'll talk to you when we can. And, and that was it, right? So as time goes on and guys get out and are in safer places to communicate, they're, they've popped back up and it's fine. There's still a contingent out there that you know wants to judge me for what I've done. That, that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think I'm the only SEAL in history that's, that's taken the route that I have. I'm not about to change that. I'm not gonna run around and, you know, um, I'm not changing that, all right? I, I like behind the radar, right? You've known me for a long time through all of this. I don't think I've changed through any of it and I don't, I don't plan on, on changing. Um, I don't mind doing this to, to share a little bit of my story with, with somebody I trust. I've, I've been very quiet about it. Um, I've tried to cooperate and do the right thing. And it's, it's just, it's drug on and on. And so now here we are talking about it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when it first happened in the, the commanding officer of BUDS, uh, like I said, we had a lot of time on our hands at BUDS, uh, had me in there and he was from your former command uh, talking about it. And, uh, and I was like, I remember, I didn't thought about this until right now, but uh, I was like, if you, th if one of our brothers, if you feel like they have made a mistake, you bring them in closer to try to help them through it. Right. And you're excommunicating this person and right. throwing them to the wolves. And I wasn't like, I wasn't a guy on the squadron who was a shitbird either, right? Like I had been ranked the top of any rank that I was, I always was a top performer. So it wasn't like I had a long track record of making really bad mistakes and bad decisions. And no, I had a track record of making very smart, good, capable decisions. And that's why the command trusted me in the positions they put me in. So it wasn't like I had some crazy track record of trying to screw people over or make bad decisions. It was, they never asked. N nobody ever asked me from NSW what you're asking me now yeah. of how you got to the point of publishing your book and why and how did it get here. I gave them all my emails. They knew exactly what I emailed back and forth with my lawyer. They didn't care. Yeah. They didn't want to see that it was my lawyer giving me the advice. They simply wanted a target and they, they came after me for that. Yeah. Were there other people that are now that there's like, you know, time heals a lot. Um, it's just the way it is. Are there people that my, have my former team leader, Jimmy has now written a book. He was at the command, right? He didn't get excommunicated. Nobody stopped talking to him now. He was at the command, a SEAL, was written a book. So is it, is it writing a book? Or what, what are we really pissed at people over? Is it writing a book or is it not? Is it, I don't know. Yeah, it, uh, it's so tough. Are there guys that, uh, that judged you back then that you, you know, like dropped you as a friend and a teammate that are now getting out and over the time have softened their position and now that they're out are reaching out to, to ask you. As everybody gets out, I get, I get reached out to all the time by guys who are now getting out, yeah. just checking in and, and touching base. It's been a long time for a lot of guys. Um, any of the haters necessarily or, or guys who judged or whatever? I don't know, I don't care. I, I learned a long time not to listen to the white noise. Yeah. And, and to me, they're, they're white noise, A, there's a lot of SEALs out there who want to judge, and I used to, I used to judge a ton when I was in. If there's anything I've learned is, hey, try not to judge so many people anymore, right? Um, and uh, so I think there's people out there that want to judge me, and 
they can all they want. People who know me and know my decision making, yeah. they can judge me for that. I, I really don't care. Yeah. At what point were you like, man, I wish I had never done this? Was it right away? I, I've always said, wow, I wish I would have hired a different attorney or gotten some better advice there. But yeah. honestly, I, I thought he was the home run. I know. Like of all the pieces in the puzzle to right. get. You hire the expert. You have to hire the <laughs> expert, the legal expert, yeah. that's going to help me navigate this. So on a team, got to have the expert. And he had the bona fides. I thought he was the expert. Mm-hmm. So we subsequently sued him for malpractice and, and won. But uh, that didn't help me at all with the government. They, they don't care that I sued my attorney and won for malpractice, that he advised me wrongly. I've mm. got it in all the documents, and it's now proven in court. Yeah. U.S. government doesn't care. They're still holding me accountable. Yeah. I wonder if anything, do you wish you had changed? What would you have changed in the book, knowing what you know now and now looking back on it with the benefit of hindsight? Is there anything that you would have, have framed differently in there or added or subtracted? No. Nope. No, I, I tried to stay somewhat apolitical, right? I think my only comment is about Biden, and and sure enough, now he's our president. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> like, I know. I think I call him the drunk, but the drunk is, uncle in it, the book, because when we met him and Obama, he had all the like inappropriate comments and jokes in the background. Like, who is that guy? Uh, he's the vice president. Turns out now he's the president. Yeah, but I think now people are like, oh. <laughs> the drunk now uncle's in charge? It. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. if you go back and read how you describe meeting the vice president in, uh, in No Easy Day, and then you see our president today, uh, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. makes sense. I had a short interaction yep. with him and I caught it. I was I like, guess. yeah. <laughs> oh, so brutal. Oh, man. Uh, and then at some point also, um, they start not just to go after you, but they start to go after your friends. Of course. Um, and that for me was... Very eye-opening, of course, um, because I'm not the only person that they they asked to sit down. Uh, they're they're your very close circle yeah, they of went friends. After all my closest circle, and they did that to put pressure on you. Yeah. Like I don't think that they really cared about why they were bringing us in. They just wanted to put pressure on you. That that was all as they were going after any of my closest circle of friends, right? And you experienced this. They, uh, that was the time where everybody was hitting me up from their wife's cell phone or the black phone saying, hey, look, they're literally coming from leadership. You talk to this guy, we're, we're screwing you. Yeah. And that was the point where, hey, anybody I was talking to, they were coming after. Uh, that was when I'd gotten out. I did the video game stuff, and they came after everybody on the video game mm-hmm. thing, right? Half of the master chiefs at my former command were working side gigs at Blackwater on the weekend. They all, like... The hypocrisy and all of that was just such a witch hunt, and that was just to get at me. Yeah. And that was take out my friends. That'll yeah, that's so, what yeah. that was. So that was the video game stuff. That was yeah. that was all of that nonsense. So yeah, so I get to see that, and that was uh, like for me. Obviously, I didn't cut off any ties, you know, with you um, because that's that's not who who I am. You know, I'm not trying to you know protect a career or anything like that. Um, but. Uh, you know, I'm gonna stand by my buddy and uh, support during a very difficult time, of course. But uh, for me, what's crazy about getting brought in and sitting down with with NCIS um, and having them ask me these questions and pull one sentence from an email here, there, try to twist it, like you see exactly what they're what they're doing. Um, and for me, I was like, Roger that. You're now going to be a character in my book. Uh, so without any of this, uh, like happening, this like terminal list 
like wouldn't exist. I remember you telling me that like, as you're riding it, you're like all of, I'm harnessing all of the energy and, yeah, and stuff so, <laughs> you were experiencing inventing it into that book. So when we talk about channeling uh, <laughs> aggression in a positive way, um, like I'm sure I was going to write uh, novels because that's what I wanted to do other than be a seal was to write, write fiction, same kind of like I loved reading growing up. So that was always my, my path. But uh, that certainly gave me a lot to work with. Uh, our senior level leaders, there might, there might be a JAG in here, or there might be an Admiral in here, there's some NCIS guys in here. Um, and when I described the, the interrogation scene in here early on, like that's how I felt. So yeah. I, didn't, I got to describe a totally fictional interrogation scene, but I got to take the feeling from what it felt like to sit down with yeah. these two guys whose heads you could just rip off if and, you just and, so desired. And answer their stupid ass questions. And be like, ah. so but I got to take that feeling and then apply it. And I remember standing up and like doing this and in the book, it made it in here. You know, James Reese, the character in here, he stands up from that and doesn't have a pistol on, but he's like, he reaches back there. Right. You know, like if it had been a hundred years earlier, yeah. there'd be two less NCIS agents. Right. And uh, you know, <laughs> that's how I felt in there. Um, so I'm very good at the, at the, you know, this side of things being, you know, mellow and thoughtful. And then at the ramp up stage of, you know, putting heads on spikes, but it's the middle part, like where, where politicians live. And it's so seems hard like to that sit part there. drives me crazy. So I can't, I can't operate in that, in that realm, but I get to, got to channel that. So without, without you and your insane <laughs> experience, uh, this book wouldn't exist. There would be a book, I'm sure, maybe it wouldn't have been published because it might not have had that feeling and emotion behind it. Right. That this, and that's what made this thing stand out to Simon and Schuster is like, oh yeah, it's a great story, but at the same time, there's some passion, real passion and yeah. emotion in here. Like, how did that happen? And it happened because of your experience yeah. and me being on the periphery of that. And I got to then channel it in, uh, in a direction that's now being made into an eight-part series by <laughs> Chris Pratt and directed by Antoine Fuqua on uh, Amazon Prime. So, uh, so thank you, Admiral Jag and NCIS guys. Um, I can remember sitting down with the NCIS guys and he literally shows me a picture from No Easy Day where I show my helmet and then the four-tube night vision. He's like, highly classified right here. You, you, I can't believe you released, just ripping me apart over this photo of the four-tube night vision. Mm -hmm. I show a photo of it. I don't give specifications, I don't do anything. You know, remember, I'm the gear guy, right? So I helped design the four-tube night vision goggles. I'm like, okay. Um, <laughs> he gets done ripping me a new one for yeah. this photo. That's did you bring highly... up the website from the company that has it on there with that's the specs? That's exactly what I did. I said, actually, could, could you go ahead and Google GPNVG night vision goggles on your... He Googles it. I'm like, okay, can you pull up the manufacturer's website? Oh, yeah. Oh, there they are on the website. There's all the specifications on the manufacturer's website. Mm -hmm. So I know you're really pissed at me trying to make me feel bad about this photo that's supposedly classified. But the manufacturer put a photo and all the specifications on their manufacturer's website for the world to see. Yeah. I'm a little confused by your approach, sir. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's the government. Come now. on. It's the government. They're gonna. That's the. That's the crazy part about having. There's a great book called Three Felonies a Day, and mm -hmm. uh, Harvey Silverglate. And I. Uh, it's one of my most gifted books. My most gifted book is Once an Eagle by Anton Meyer. Um, and I give that to, to people that I really like. And then there's this uh, Three Felonies a Day book that I give to people that are are interested in uh, the growth of of government on uh, the scope of uh, of our legal system, lawfare, targeting 
people based on an interpretation of laws that are written so broadly that the government can really go after anyone of their choosing. Sure. Um, and well, they chose and to go after you. That's that's exactly what happened, right? If, if we have a sitting congressman who's a former SEAL who's written a book since mine and not got his reviewed, there's, there's no standard here. It's yeah. not like- They can pick and choose. Naval yeah. Special Warfare can sit back yeah. and say, well, no, there's a standard and, and right. Mark Owen's book is where we, no. They haven't even kept the standard. They just, they capped on me and then everybody else since then, it, it hasn't been an issue. Yeah, and that's why I got this also approved. Uh, I sent it through because of your experience as well, uh, because I was like, well, I'm gonna be uber safe here and send something that's totally made up fiction, uh, other than the feelings associated with it right. uh, for review. But they review. still and redacted. They, they took, yeah, they took a good amount out. Not, out of this one, I think it was like, actually not a good amount in this one, it was like nine. Yeah. Uh, but this one, they took out more 54 uh, passages, words, oh, sentences, fictional. whatever. Um, but then I appealed and I won on 37 of them because my attorneys went and they, this one I couldn't afford attorneys. This one, I'm like, let's appeal. And so we had tied every single redaction to a publicly available government document. Right. So not just on a Wikipedia or somebody else's book or a newspaper article, but to a government, to a government document that you can yeah. get from the government. You can download whatever it is from the government and here it is. Uh, so we tied every single one. They only let me win on 37 of the 54, but all 54 were tied to a publicly available Government, government document. document. Yeah. And a lot of it stu was stuff I didn't even know from the, from the SEAL teams. Um, and then this one, same thing. So this one, once again, submitted and uh, they went through it. There were redactions. I forget how many. But uh, I went back to appeal this one. Same thing. So the attorneys did the work. They tied everything to a publicly available government document. And then we waited and waited. And, uh, and the government came back and said, oh, we're not going uh, to let you appeal. Like, What? Like it says, it's part of the process. Like right. you submit and, you and then appeal. you can appeal. But we're not gonna let you do that. Yeah. yeah. And so I took that as, hey, quit bothering us with this fiction stuff. You're wasting our time. So uh, anyway, that's, it's just kind of interesting how they can, you know, they pick in, and choose, but that's no just- no hero, right? No I got goes. my second one reviewed, no problem. They redact the number between five and seven mm. in the script. Yes. But if you look at the photos, they don't redact the number between five and seven. Oh, fine. So it's- the whole process is such a mess. You know the it's deal. A it's, yeah. Yeah, it's a little antiquated. Yeah, it's a little antiquated. And uh, yeah, there's probably better ways to do it these days. I mean, um, it, was, it was more of the same type of leadership I, I'd argue that I'd seen in Afghanistan, you know, percolating to the top over my previous three deployments to Afghanistan, right? Uh, I won't say just Afghanistan, but just the, the leadership in general was becoming much more about themselves and less, the, the focus was not on real war fighting. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's been a crazy journey for you. And then along this way, as you've you've gotten out and you've you've moved on into this next chapter, you've dealt with the government issues. You've, uh, I'm sure, felt betrayed by certain elements of the community, maybe or former friends. I mean, it's got to be a crazy mix of emotions because um, I felt enough of them. I know, just you know, ho hopefully helping a little bit as you went through it. I've always tried to try to be there, but um, it's uh, like, what a crazy thing that you've been dealing with. And then at the same time, continuing to help the community, continuing to be um, a good example to that sixth grade kid, seventh grade kid, eighth grade kid, high school kid who reaches out to talk to you, who reads this book and doesn't really know about any of the controversy behind it, just sees some kid from Alaska who follows his dream, goes into the SEAL teams, fights for his country, ends up on one of this, these, the biggest missions of the last, you know, century and uh, 
and is just motivated and inspired by that story. Um, so you've been doing all that. And at the same time, like you have changed my life and my family's life for the better on so many different occasions. Like the, uh, we would not have a diagnosis for our son had, uh, had you not met someone in Dallas who knew Ross Perot's financial advisor, who uh, then forwards uh, an email to him about our family situation where the military medicine community, medical community couldn't figure out what was going on with our middle child. Um, uh, we went to all these paying it for ourselves on the outside, doing all this. Cedar sinai couldn't figure it out. These genetic researchers up there and, and specialists and all these other things that, that we did. My wife did most of it while I was deployed or training. Um, but uh, if you hadn't made that connection, we might still not have a diagnosis. Um, and what happened was this guy, this, this uh, financial advisor, is friends with someone that you knew. He walks it in, drops it on Ross Perot's desk. And I hung says, out with Ross Perot at his office, uh, and he bought me lunch. We in that cafeteria, a break, uh, the cafeteria. Yeah, yeah. He like carried my my tray for me. Amazing. We had lunch, and I had carried a uh, an American flag on the Bin Laden mission. And, and the cool thing about Ross Perot's offices, his whole building. Mm -hmm. He's been given so much stuff over mm -hmm. the years. It's like a full museum. It's amazing. Have you been there? After after this. Okay, okay. Yeah. So so I had to give him the flag. I wrote him a nice letter. Yeah. And uh and he put that on his wall. And so that's yeah. how I asked him. I was like, hey, I got a buddy who could amazing. maybe use you probably got the right medical connections. Can you maybe And sure enough he did. Sure enough, yeah. He did. He uh helped fund or the building of Southwestern Medical Center in outside of Dallas. And uh, after you did that and he found out about it, he called me out of the blue and he sounded like, uh, you know, what, who was it, Dana Carvey? Who did the Ross Perot imitation on Saturday Night Live? Uh, impersonating Ross Perot back in the 90s. And uh, he sounded exactly like that on the phone. And he's like, we're going to fix your son. And uh, I'm sending the jet tomorrow and uh, we'll fly out here. And, you know, then he hangs up. And uh, about an hour later, his lead doctor called from Southwestern Medical Center and said, hey, uh, I know Mr. Perot just called and said that they're sending the jet. Um, we're, we'll send it in about a month. Uh, in the meantime, send you everything you have uh, on your son's medical condition and we'll put a team together and we'll see what we can do. And so we got everything from Cedar sinai from the, the military medical system, everything we'd done on the outside, we sent it all out there. Uh, they studied it, they put a team of genetic specialists together and sure enough, they send the G550 and uh, with a nurse on board for our son wow. and fly us out to, to Dallas, have the Suburbans waiting right there, take us to the hotel. And then the next day we go meet Ross Perot in that same, that same office complex where he used to uh, have his offices and uh, got to spend the day with him. He walked us around. He gave us the tour personally. We had the, the lunch and uh, the history I, I think he had, the, he had ice cream or uh, like a soft serve yogurt or something. Um, but he could not have been uh, nicer, uh, more intelligent, more inspiring and I'll never be able to thank him or you enough for doing that because what happened after that was those genetic specialists found out, uh, found another team of genetic specialists in the Netherlands who had just discovered this specific genetic mutation that our son had and he was the 13th person in the world they ever found with it. And so that gave us uh, a diagnosis. We could say, especially for my wife, she could say, oh, okay, we know. And even though that didn't change long-term prognosis and having to care for she him knows. forever, we know we can put a name to it. And for whatever reason, that was like a reset in our life and gave us a foundation from which to keep moving forward. So I'll never be able to thank you enough for that. And then uh, 
And then you introduced me to some of my best friends on the planet right now. Like uh, these guys that I go hunting with all around the world. And it's all because because you introduced me to them. They found out about our son and they wanted to do a little fundraiser while I'm still in the, in the military so that uh, we could get a, a special needs like stroller thing. Because anytime something special needs, it's like, the $20 stroller becomes $2,000, right. uh, anything like that, a zip-in bed, like all sure. these things. And uh, they just wanted to help. And I never asked for anything, but you you started that ball rolling. And Dom came out from Dynamis Alliance, and he's teaching these guys to shoot. And it's uh, it's like a year before I get out, I think. And, uh, you know, they got this bed for our son and the special needs stroller for him to help him get around and all, all that sort of thing. And uh, I'm still dear friends with them today. But had you not done that, you know, I wouldn't know these guys, um, wouldn't have those relationships, and I wouldn't have this diagnosis for for our son. I mean, it's uh, it's amazing. So thank you for uh, for all that, for always making those making those connections, and you know, always uh, always being a buddy. Too easy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. And then, at what point do you, does SEAL Team CBS become a part of this? <laughs> Yeah, right? I get screwed for writing a book, but they're happy about the TV show. You can't make this stuff up. And in the now. meantime, so do you, when did, when did uh, the Captain Phillips movie come out? And then American Sniper is in there somewhere. And, you know, Zero Dark Thirty, of course, comes out. So that's still like in this time period. All of these all came these out. Are, and, and don't forget, right? Captain Phillips, the movie, again, NSW authorized two active duty SEALs to go consult on the movie mm. to make sure it was accurate. Mm. So, they're very involved in authorizing this stuff behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that all, that all, so when does, yeah. That when comes does, out, I, I had a, uh, I, I didn't parachute in, but I say it all the time. I, literally the first person I met was Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Uh, I had a meeting with him um, and it was all just discussions. Hey, what, you know, I remember a lot of the questions were, what does Hollywood do wrong with military shows? And I, I remember telling, <laughs> Most I don't think that was to Spielberg. I think that was to the CBS guy that I was meeting with. And I was like, well, you don't hire enough veterans. Hmm. You, don't, you don't let veterans get involved enough in the story. And he's like, oh, interesting. Like, okay, well, you know, let's, let's see if we can maybe put a show together. I'm like, okay. But we got to hire veterans, right? He's like, yes, absolutely. That's the president. We get the deal going. We get, our, we get the pilot made. We get the pilot picked up. And immediately from some of my co-executive producers, they immediately take me and they're like, hey, go stand over there, write down all your good stories and you know, we'll call you if we need anything. I'm like, well, that's, that's not kind of the deal we set here. The deal we made with the, with the big boss was that there'd be veterans included in all parts of this, this production, right? Yeah. Um, and so first guy we had hired was, was Tyler Gray, right? He's on the show, absolute stud, awesome. former Army counterpart of mine, yeah. right? Just like you'd always want to be a SEAL or an author, he wanted to be yeah. in, in the Army or, or in entertainment. Yeah. So he did Army, got blown up, and, and uh, so he was looking for an opportunity in that world that already played in it a little bit. So we got Tyler involved, got a few more veterans involved, thought we were on the right track, and, and again, kept getting the whole, like, okay, go, go stand to the side. Right. You guys don't know what you're talking about. So literally, I, th I think I'm the only person who's ever gone back to the president of CBS, I think I've done it twice, and said, hey, sir, really appreciate the opportunity. This was great, but um, this isn't the deal we made, mm -hmm. and, and I'm not interested in continuing if this is... This is how this is going to play out. I yeah. just not not for me, right. and, and so I've been very lucky in the aspect that 
that they've been receptive, right? We've brought in more and more veterans every year to, to the show SEAL team. Uh, I would say season one, we had over 150 to some degree. Yeah. I'd like to say we've broke a couple hundred vets involved each Amazing. season. And that's from Tyler's now directing, right? Amazing. Director's Guild. So great. In the union, has a career path. Stunts, actors, uh, we got people in the editing bays. We've got writers, veterans in the writers' room, which is key, right? Oh, We're yeah. writing a show about seals, and we don't have seals in the room creating the stories. Has to happen. <laughs> I, I fought three years to get two uh, seals in the writers' room. It's so now. crazy. So we've, and that's why I think it's working. It's telling the authentic stories. We teamed up with the Gary Sinise Foundation, mm. uh, gave a tour of the set to thirty Gold Star widows. Right, thirty women who'd lost their husband in one form or another, husbands, and uh, so we brought them into the the team room on the set, yeah. and we brought down all our writers, right, to come up with these episodes. And I had the writers sit in the back of the room, wow. and we asked all the women to go around the room and share the story of how they lost their husband. Jeez, right? Wasn't a dry eye in the room, yeah. and, and you go to the writers at the end, you're like, were you listening, right? Those are the stories. That's the that's what you need to grasp onto to to get in these episodes. It's not the heroic shoot 'em up stuff. It's got to be the balance of of yeah, the shoot 'em up stuff that we have to do is our day job. But then how do you come back and deal with family and yeah. uh, and balance all of that? Dude. People ask me all the time, like, what, what, what do you think of the show? You know, and uh, it's fantastic. You guys do such a good job with that. Particularly, I'm looking at the weapons, of course. You know, I'm making sure the scope covers are off and, and that Ta sort of thing. The tactical, the, the gear stuff looks great. It looks very so good. There. It the, looks so um, good. You got Justin in there with his dog. You got the <laughs> whole thing going on. Like, yeah. it's it's so great. You got other SEALs on there acting, doing stunts. And, you know, it's it's well, so cool to see that. And I've, I've, I'm going to steal something and not steal it. Something I learned from Tyler, right? And this is something he's he's repeated a hundred other times, and it's it's the first thing that's ever really connected with me. I, I think I've told you about it. That LTSD. He's like, listen, man, we we don't have PTSD, we have LTSD. Yeah, you're me that. Like, okay, Tyler, what, what's LTSD? He's like, we have lack of traumatic stress disorder. We have lack of yeah. Think about it. He's like, for a decade straight. For a good time, you know, for your day job, for a decade, Monday, Wednesday, Friday night, you were going to pick the lock on somebody's door, blow it open, whatever, enter that house and come face to face with somebody with a gun or, or otherwise and have to sort out that situation in a very calm, mm. fluid manner. Okay? If you do that long enough, um, you have to be very calm in those stressful situations, right? Firefights break out. We're going to get very calm and, and do our thing. Well, that's because our, our, that's our baseline that we've established. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we're getting that rush, right? And that yeah. traumatic stress. And that's our happy place because we operate within it. Okay, great, till we get out of the military. Yeah. Now we're out. We don't have that stress in our lives, right? We have lack of traumatic stress disorder, right? So what do these guys go do? They go, right, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, right? Beat their old lady, whatever the side effect is. They're trying to replicate that, mm. that chaos. Yeah. Now, what's fascinating is we've taken all these veterans who, and I'd say 99% of the ones we have on the show were, were combat vets, right? They, they've now come back, a TV set, and you've seen your show getting filmed. It's a chaotic environment with hundreds of people going around in different directions with different roles and responsibilities. It's, it's chaos. Yeah. So you take a guy like Tyler who right, was blown up in combat, had a really bad exit, and had his own journey and struggle to, to get through that. 
Now he's back in a job where he's working six days a week, 10 to 12 hours a day. There's chaos everywhere, but he's like the guy. Mm-hmm. He's like the glue holding it together and, and boom, he's back in his happy place. Yeah. And he's doing great because he has the chaos in his life. Yeah. He feels a little more normal and, and it's the best way I've ever heard it explained to me. We have yeah. lack of traumatic stress disorder. Interesting, yeah. If we don't feel it, we gotta go recreate it. Yeah, well, movie set's a good place for that because it's... Uh, it is chaotic, and it's what's my my cool take. My couple takeaways uh, were that how professional everyone is, how good they are at their jobs, and then how hard they're working. Like on the set of the Terminalist, it's crazy for me to see as an executive producer. I sit back and I watch how hard everybody's working uh, for that 12 hours, and then oh, we're going over, okay, and you're on that clock, okay, we're gonna. It means if we go over by two, then we have to do this over here, and you right. can kind of see why those things are in place. Nobody understands it's, the amount of work wild. that those 300 oh. people do on that set. I'm so much more forgiving now when I see a mistake. The hours a day, mm-hmm. and the amount of time they're putting in is, is impressive, and that's a choreographed, I'm impressed. Oh, I'm so impressed when I walk away from them, and you know, you can't talk about it too much because then people are like, oh, roll their eyes, like, oh, it's Hollywood, it's, it seems, looks easy. Uh, from the outside, it looks easy. We see that finished product, it sure looks easy. But uh, having observed how hard everybody's working oh. and what you, people see is they see that person giving the speech at the Academy Awards or the Golden Globes or whatever, and maybe they spout off about something or whatever, and people, uh, all of a sudden that becomes Hollywood. Well, what you don't realize is that's, that's this one person, and underneath them, to make that, there were 350 other people. And those are normal citizens, Americans who are working so hard at whatever their job might be. And, you know, just because they're working on this film set doesn't necessarily mean they hold that political view of this person who got up at the Oscars. Like, it's not all of Hollywood. Um, Like, we had American flags all the way down, all the trucks from the Teamsters, American flags flying, come and take it, flags flying. You know, it it was amazing to see. And then people would come over to me and talk talk guns, talk motorcycles, talk land cruisers, talk knives, uh, talk about how, hey, I have a cousin or, uh, or my son just went to boot camp or um, my nephew just deployed for the first time. Uh, and I always brought a bo- box of books to the set and I'd be signing it to him and all, all that sort of thing. So people are working so hard on these things. So now when I see anything get ripped apart by a critic, I'm just like, oh, it's just heartbreaking because you know how much work, even if sure. it's awful, quote unquote awful. And there's so many opportunities to mess it up also. So Agreed. many opportunities to well, make, and I mess think, it up. Back to my point of having all the vets on the SEAL team show, yeah. it, there's so many opportunities to screw it up where you got to get the veteran stuff right or it's, or it's wrong, mm-hmm. right? We had the veteran suicide stuff, right? That was a, it's a hot topic to discuss. And if you do that wrong, oh. you blow your, your veteran audience. Yeah. And, and I think why the show's powerful, working is because the veteran yeah. audience gets it. But- there's so many opportunities to miss it yeah. where we've been successful is we've packed the production with so many veterans that each one of them has their voice to be like, oh, I can change this little piece. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I can change this little piece so and make important. it a little more. And, yeah. and so those little pieces that could easily get missed before mm-hmm. are, are getting picked up. And, and so you see a more authentic product. I think. And what's cool is that I see so much of you in it when you, when, when the main, one of the main characters, Jason Hayes, talks about the numbers in his phone, yeah. you know, I know all the writers have read both my books, and so they lo- they love the the three foot world from No yeah, Hero. There foot day, maybe a lot of world. three foot world in, in yeah. There's three team. foot world in there. There's that. There's the Mexican food. It's not Taco Bell, <laughs> yeah. but it's Mexican food, you know. And he, but that uh, character is not based off me in any way. That that was never the intent. That was yeah. not the deal. All, all those characters are are loosely based off of personality types that I knew in the teams and 
and shaped together that way. And then it's the writers that come up with the real storylines. Yeah, no, there's, it's, uh, they do, a, they do a great job. You guys do a fantastic job on, on that show. Um, and, uh, yeah, like, like my phone too, you know, I can't bring myself to delete somebody who's not with us anymore. Like there's something, I don't know, weird I don't know why, but like you can't, you can't, I don't know. That is, it's a weird yeah. thing, but it's not, it's just not, it's not, so I'm, I'm, so I'm sure we're not the only two. I'm sure that most, I don't know if I'm sure or not, but I would guess that most people don't delete somebody from their phone when they're not with us anymore. I don't know. Yeah, that's just, I don't know. But, uh, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, now that you're, now that you are out and, uh, you know, people, you haven't, you don't show your face because it's something that you can control. Um, you know, when we do something, something like this, a very limited amount of other things that, that you have done, um, you haven't, ex you know, built a business around, you know, these, this, this uh, public persona. You haven't used social media to build a business or anything like that. Um, you have a, an Instagram that you, you check maybe once a month or something like that to say thank you or, or good luck to a kid who wants, says he wants to follow my, his dream. My and social media has morphed a lot because, A, I've never done it. So then I did an Instagram, you know, Mark Owen Seal, and I don't know, I was just trying to figure out what, in, what, what social media does yeah. is, um, I think to be perfectly honest, I, I set it up so there was, because right, I was that kid who read the book in junior high and was, you know, and I, I try and put a lot of that in here is I'm trying mm -hmm. to inspire the next generation of, of men and women. And, and so I wanted some way that I could have some comms outlet with, with different young adults yeah. out there who want to reach out. And so that's... That's been the the one positive to social media. Yeah. Otherwise, I've I'm not a big fan of social media. That's not me. I yeah. uh, I watched Social Dilemma last oh, year. That'll as get we you. talked about. That'll it. get you. Yeah. And then, and then I moved my Instagram to another phone, and now I do it less and less and less. And yeah, it's a uh, it's an interesting animal because it doesn't lend itself to obviously nuance to uh, exploring complex issues in a, in a thoughtful way. So my whole thing is, hey, I can't, as much as I would like to respond to some, and then you have to let stand, if you make the decision not to engage with someone who says something that's outrageous or that you wanna clarify or, right. or whatever it, it is, uh, then it just stands. And so it's just like, anyways, it's not the healthiest way to engage uh, in a productive dialogue, yet we're, we gravitate to it now so much to the extent that social media companies can influence our behavior because they have so oh, much information about us. Um, so I understand why you shy away from it. Um, for me, it's my essentially my my storefront, sure. you know, where I inter, inter engage with a with a readership and continue to build that readership via a modern day word of mouth. But um, I definitely understand why you why you shy shy away. Again, for me, I, I wasn't building a business around any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about a brand or right? You had dreamt about being an author and you're going to continue writing amazing books. You know, maybe I got one more in me. I don't know. Call it No Easy Way. Hey, uh, look at that. Breaking news. <laughs> Breaking news we'll, here we'll, on the Danger we'll, Close podcast. We'll see. Um, That's a great title for it, actually. Yeah, not No Easy Day. Yeah, yeah. No Easy Way, because as it turns out, it takes way longer than a day to get through <laughs> some shit. <laughs> and in that one, if you go forward and do that, would it be about this journey, this post um, post not post, well, yeah, the post-military It journey. would 100% be about the transition out of the military, right? It would be about the mental health struggles I've, I've dealt with and, and I, I would argue a lot of my other close friends have dealt with. 
uh, and a lot of many other veterans have dealt with. Um, I, and we're, we're actually working on a documentary as well. Nice. Um, we, just to be able to address those issues, right? We, we want to make it less, uh, less stigma around people saying, Hey, uh, I, I've got some issues and I need some help and they may be in my head or what, wherever they are. I don't care. I don't mm. know what they are. Just raise your hand and say, you need help and, and get the right people around you to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the teams are great at saying suck it up and and I was great at that for a really long yeah. time until I got out and and dealt with everything that I did with with our own government um, that that definitely put me in a in a dark spot and I've had to I've had to figure out a lot through that right I've had to figure out uh, what my work life balance is and how I right I, I meditate now. Right? I would have thought that was crazy witchcraft 10 years right. ago. Now it's a healthy part of my life, right? I'm, uh, I've reconnected with God and, and my faith. I've, I've tried to be more balanced in a lot of those ways that, that I wasn't before. Um, but, but yeah, that, that's what uh, No Easy Way w- would talk about. Um, and it would reintroduce a lot of other characters that you've read about in, in, in my first two books mm-hmm. because these other characters have transitioned out, right? My yeah. former team leader, you know, has, has talked about in his book and his journey getting out. And we've all had our own exits. And they're all filled with equal number of speed bumps and yeah. roadblocks and learning points and et cetera. And, and I think it's important to share that now more than ever, especially with all the pandemic and yeah. stuff going on with just civilians. I think they could learn a few things. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then now, in particular, when we're talking about veterans who have spent time on the ground in Afghanistan to see how it ended oh, in this last August, over these last few weeks, um, to see, you know, just very naturally start asking those questions about, you know, was it worth it? And, you know, what did my, what did my friend lose his life for? What did I lose my leg for? Uh, the families of those who didn't make it back asking those same type of questions. So uh, I think this is a very... Uh, very important time because um, because all veterans are going to be I think asking those questions and uh, yeah I think for me you have to come back to a couple of things but one is not letting those same senior level leaders who have been jacking things up for 20 years and obviously uh, essentially didn't rush to their deaths they rushed to, rushed to some other people's deaths uh, in Afghanistan don't let them take another one of us because of their strategic level missteps so don't let that don't let them do that so that's that's kind of the hard you know you know side of it and then the other side of it is hey I went there, I stood up, I did my duty when my country needed me, and uh, I, I, I was there with my brothers and sisters to my right and left, and uh, we went forward and we did our job, and we did the best we could with what we were given, and uh, that, for sure, is something that all veterans can be proud of. So I think a mixture, that's how I'm thinking of it anyway, those two strategic level, and then at this tactical level, um, is how, kind of how I'm looking at this. Combined with a gut punch and then a kick in the nuts. <laughs> Bam, yeah, yeah, they'll, they'll They'll get you. So it's a rough, it's a rough time for sure. So, uh, so I think seeing SEAL Team CBS, you know, seeing uh, other veterans out there that are portraying their transition uh, and being honest about it, and uh, giving, showing people that hey, there's 
not just hope here, there's a path. Like, like you, you can do this. You have to uh, identify that mission, identify that passion, uh, find out what's important to you, and you can go forward and do this. And I think seeing other people do that, so that's, that is one of the powers of social media. Of course, there's the other side of it too, where you're like, you know, seeing, uh, like, like seeing the person's car who's nicer than yours and it makes you feel bad, or, you know, that, that sort of thing. But, um, but there's that the side of it where you can see, hey, other people have gotten out and done this. I can do that too. You know, that's why I think there's a positive there. I can't do the social media thing because it's just <laughs> no, right? Like I get all it. they do is post their favorite pictures to make everybody think their life is perfect. It's like yeah. it's all bullshit. It's just, a, uh, just be real. Yeah, shut off your phone, engage with your neighbor and some yeah. friends in a real way, and you'll be happier. Yeah, and there's also that thing about being, you know, what, what, when you, how do you define success for you? And if you think of it in terms, uh, you know, financially, there's, there's different ways you can you can look at, at success. But now I'm starting to look at it in terms of being present. And if I'm present with my wife and my kids, um, that is my now definition of success. Um, and maybe that's because I accomplished a couple other things that I was very focused on. Uh, one, being a SEAL, and two, you know, writing these books and having it be on the New York Times list and then getting the series made and all that stuff, uh, which takes a ton of time, energy, and effort, of course, but uh, that's not the metric for success. The metric for success for me is uh, being present with my wife and my kids when I'm there. So um, I think that's huge, right? I, yeah. We both were the happiest we've ever been, getting shot at, going to war, <laughs> making no money. Yeah. Right? So what does that say about just find something you're passionate about that you're willing to go all in on mm-hmm. and, and do it? It has nothing to do with money. Right. I was way happier making no money in the teams (laughs) doing that. Right. So I'm with you. It's, it's not about financial success. It's what I've figured out is it's, it's really about that balance, right? It's work-life balance. And, and so I'm not just always chasing work. It's, Hey, can I be all in with my friends and family? And do I have, do I have good relationships with people? Yep. Man, I covered a lot of ground. Dang. Incredible. It's been a while. Yeah. No, that was why that was uh I really appreciate you coming out and it's only you know, for you. trusting me to do this. <laughs> We're the only person that'll hear it. We're the only people that are that are gonna hear this. Uh no, thank you for uh for sitting down. I know it must be very difficult to have especially in a time and in this in the world where you can reach out on social channels and respond to things and you know, it's a possibility for you to have to not engage that way, even when you see something that you maybe want to explain or try to you know, explain to somebody or whatever it might be, um, you know, you, I think you've you've handled yourself. I can't imagine anybody handling the situation better. Like once once this was out there, books published, like that round is downrange. You can't you can't pull that one you can't pull that one one back, uh, and you you can't change your attorney's advice, and you can't pick another uh, go back in time and pick another attorney. Like those rounds are down yep. downrange. So knowing that those rounds are downrange already and cannot be brought back, uh, that the way you have like handled yourself through an incredible stress, uh, seeing friends dragged in, how they tried to weaponize that against you, uh, and having to deal with obviously huge financial stress and, uh, and everything else that's, that has transpired in a time that is tough for veterans anyway, especially when they have done and seen, uh, uh, you know, what, what you have over, over your time in uniform. Um, that's a tough transition like that. That's, that would be I mean, I, I think absolutely that you have handled yourself. <laughs> I think you've handled yourself uh, 
in, in a way that uh, is uh, is honorable and uh, as an example for for anyone going through a tough situation. It doesn't have to be something like this. It doesn't have to be government related. Like everyone's gonna in their life have be tested and they're gonna stumble and they're gonna get knocked down. And what really defines your character is not just getting back up and moving forward because that's that's your only choice. Like you have to get up and move forward, but it's the way that you get up and you move forward. That's what says the most about you uh, and how many people you try to bring up with you as you stand back up while there are others trying to tear you down and move forward in a way that's a, it's a good example for your, your family, your friends, for other people out there in your circle, no matter how big or small it is. And uh, to see you and how you have dealt with that, uh, it's, Man, it's been an inspiration to, to me and I know a, a ton of others. And it, you've known my journey the whole time, right? We've talked openly about this. I, I have not talked publicly about it. I've been very more quiet with it because like everything, I've, I've tried to let my actions speak louder than my words, right? Mm -hmm. Like talk about in the book, I was, I was never the quick-witted guy. I was, I was the guy <laughs> talking shit to me and I'd never have the quick joke response quick enough. Like, all right, all right, I just got to keep my mouth shut and go work them on the range or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So keep my mouth shut and just show with your actions. And so it's been over a decade since I've written the books and it's my actions are still the same. I'm not changing, right? I'm not going to run around and be like, hey, this is me. I'm, I'm super cool. I've done, no, that's just not ever going to change. With, uh, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I, I appreciate you seeing that um, because that's what I'm, what, what's important. I don't, I don't give a shit about anybody else. Yeah. Well, thank you for sitting down. Thank you for the example. And what do you say to when those kids do reach out to you on, uh, on the social channel, or if you run into them at an event or a friend introduces you to, you know, there's their seventh grade kid who wants to be a SEAL or right. wants to be a ranger or wants to, you know, do whatever. Um, what do you, uh, what do you tell, what do you tell them to these, uh, this next generation? I always tell kids to dream big, right? I don't think they dream big enough, right? I read the books like SEAL, that sounded huge, right? Mm -hmm. I read a uh, SEAL sounded like the hardest. So dream big and then understand that none of that's gonna come easy, right? Anything that's worthwhile is not going to come for free or cheap or quickly. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you didn't earn it. And, and so understand that work and dedication to be successful and then put that into your work ethic every single day and your, your commitment to get there. Um, I don't know. I've, hundreds of people have reached out via Instagram. I've probably got 20 that have gone to Bud's. Wow. I've probably, you know, that I've corresponded with yeah. or called and gave them a little pep talk before yeah. they went. I've probably half of those have not made it through. Um, I got hit up by a guy that via Instagram and we became friends. Uh, he's leaving on a second deployment here soon. So another guy screening for damn next soon. Like, so there's. Well, now you're just making me feel old. So <laughs> wow. Appreciate it. We are. Oh, gosh. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, no, that's amazing. Yeah, same thing. You know, no matter what, I can guarantee that you're not going to get where you want to go or surpass it if you don't put in the work. Like, that's the, that's the one thing I know. Uh, even if you put in that work, no guarantee that you're going to make it through BUDS or make it to a SEAL team or make it, uh, you know, to the pinnacle of special operations or whatever it is in your life you want to do. It doesn't have to be in the military. But I know that if you don't put in that work at that base level, you're definitely not doing it. Yep. Like, that's the known. Yep. So what do you have to do? You got to put in the work. Yep. I right know.
Everything's about the commitment level. Uh, if you want to be a SEAL or just a good business person or a good father, mother, et cetera, what's your commitment level to that task? Wow. Right? Tommy Valentine is all in all the time, right? You can make mistakes. That is what it is. Learn from those mistakes, but your commitment level is all in all the time, right? No, no backup plan. Think of it playing poker. There's no extra chips in your back pocket. You're 100% committed to that. Man. And, uh, yeah, I try and take that commitment level to, to anything I do. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. That was part four of a special four-part series, my conversation with my dear friend, Mark Owen, titled The Head of the Snake, Killing Osama Bin Laden. Be sure to pick up Mark's book, No Easy Day and No Hero. And if you like the conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. So until the next time, take care out there, stay safe, be strong, keep fighting.